The Song of Songs. It's a well-known but not so well-understood book of the Bible. It's eight chapters of love poetry. And while there is an introduction and a conclusion, the book doesn't have any kind of rigid literary design, and that's because it's a collection of poems. They're not meant to be dissected or taken apart. They're meant to be read as a flowing whole and simply enjoyed. The first line of the book tells us that it's the Song of Songs, which is a Hebrew idiom like the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings. It's a Hebrew way of saying the greatest thing. So this is the greatest song of all songs. Then we're told in the first line that this Song of Songs is of Solomon, which could mean that he is the author. His name does begin the book after all. But as you read the poems, you discover that the main voice is that of a woman called the Beloved. And while there is also a male voice, it does not seem to be Solomon's. Solomon is mentioned a couple times in the poems, but he's never a speaker. And you do have to admit, Solomon is a very odd candidate as the author of this book, given the fact that he had 700 wives. For the lovers in the Song of Songs, they are the only ones in the world for each other. So the of Solomon likely means in the wisdom tradition of Solomon. He was known for his wisdom, his poetry, his love of learning about every part of life. And Solomon became the father of wisdom literature in Israel. And so his legacy is here carried on through a collection of love poems that explores the human experience of love and sexual desire. The opening poem introduces us to the basic theme of this book. We hear the voice of the young woman who delights in her man, a shepherd. Now she's not married to him yet, but it becomes clear that they're engaged and they cannot wait to be together. From the introduction, the poems flow back and forth from the woman's voice to the man's, shifting from scene to scene without any kind of clear linear sequence or storyline. The poems move in these symphonic cycles and key images and ideas get repeated and developed. So, one of the basic themes uniting the poems is the intense desire that this couple has for each other, expressed through their constant seeking and finding. So after the opening poem, they're separated but on the hunt for one another. So the woman calls out or she'll wake up from a dream or go looking for her lover, and more than once they'll find each other, they'll embrace, and then right when things start to get a bit racy, the scene will suddenly end and a new one will start, they're separated, looking for each other, and on it goes. Another repeated theme is the joy of the couple's physical attraction for one another. So multiple times, they'll pause and describe each other with these elaborate metaphors. And here it's very helpful to know that these images and metaphors in Hebrew poetry are not primarily visual. If you try and paint a picture of these people based on the metaphors, you will end up with something that looks very, very strange. What you're supposed to do is reflect on the meaning of these images as they relate to the man and the woman. So you'll read through the poetic cycles and the tension will keep building and their desire and joy and attraction. And this spiraling repetition is a poetic way of heightening and focusing on the mystery and power of sexual love. It all comes together in the conclusion, which pauses to summarize what these poems are all about. Love is as strong as death. Its passions are as severe as the grave. Its flashes are of fire, a divine flame. Many waters cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, he would be utterly scorned. The poem highlights the power and the intensity of love, how it's both beautiful but also dangerous. Like fire, love can destroy people if it's abused or be life-giving if it's protected. 
Ultimately, love expresses the insatiable human longing to know and be fully known and desired by another. Love is one of the most transcendent and mysterious experiences in human life, and as a part of the Bible's wisdom tradition, this book says it's a gift from God. After this, there's an odd poem about Solomon trying to do what the previous poem just said was impossible, to buy love. The woman rejects Solomon's offer, and then the book concludes with the man and the woman. They're separate once more on the hunt for each other. He calls to hear her voice. She begs him to run away with her, and that's how the book ends. Just totally open-ended. But that's a lot like love which never truly concludes because there's always more to discover and pursue in your beloved. And so true love has no end, and neither does this book. Now through history, the big question raised by the Song of Songs is what on earth is love poetry doing in the Bible? There have been three main interpretations of this book throughout history. In Jewish tradition, it's been read as an allegory, each character a symbol. So the woman is Israel, the man is God, and their love is a symbol of the covenant between God and Israel made at Mount Sinai and the giving of the Torah. This view flowed into the Christian tradition, but the characters were swapped. So it's about Christ's love for his people, the church. And this interpretation was inspired by Paul's words in Ephesians 5, that a Christian husband's love for his wife is a symbol of Christ's love for the church. What's interesting is that in the last hundred years, archaeological discoveries among Israel's ancient neighbors in Egypt and Babylon has turned up all kinds of ancient love poetry that's very similar in language and imagery to the Song of Songs. We see that love poetry was a meaningful part of Israel's cultural environment, which has led most scholars today to view the Song of Songs as what it presents itself to be, an arrangement of Israelite love poetry reflecting on the divine gift of love. But that doesn't mean that it's only ancient love poetry. There's a key feature of these poems that sticks out when you read them as a part of the Old Testament, and that's the overwhelming use of garden imagery. There are powerful echoes of the Garden of Eden and the idyllic scene between the married couple in the early chapters of Genesis. So the image of the man and the woman naked and vulnerable, but completely unified and safe with one another. This resonates in the background of the Song of Songs. It's as if in these poems we are witnessing the love of a couple whose relationship is untainted by selfishness and sin. And so ultimately the song holds out hope that even though our own relationships are so often distorted by selfishness, love is a transcendent gift and it's meant to point us to something greater, to the gift of God's love that will one day permeate and transform his beloved world. And that's what the Song of Songs is all about. Amen. Let's pray together this morning as we turn to God's Word. Father God, we thank you for your Word, for the truth that you have communicated. We thank you for the incredible variety that exists within your Word and the different things you have expressed about who you are and what you have created us to be. And God, this morning as we explore these ideas, we pray that your Spirit would speak. Father God, there are places that we are going to need to be convicted very strongly. We pray an openness to that, God. It might hurt. My God, your desire for love and physical relationship to be healthy and whole as you created it to be is powerful. And God, we want to submit to that. 
As you speak this morning, God, we pray that we would trust you, that we would love you, and that we would see what you desire us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we begin this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read just a portion of this that they were just talking about a little bit. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed the place with flesh. The Lord God made woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We were created for the deepest and most intimate relationship and connection that is possible between two beings. An expression of the very nature of God Himself, the depth of unity and connection that He knows within His own being, exposed and free, united and whole together. What God has made is good. And while it has been poisoned, it has not been lost. And God's amazing power and love desires to redeem. Amen. This morning we're continuing our journey through the seven deadly sins this summer as we explore our theme, Set Free. That God desires us to live in a fullness and abundance of life set free and restored by the sacrifice of Jesus to make us whole. To make us new. To live in this new way. To experience life as He meant it to be. It was good. This kingdom life. Empowered by the Spirit in relationship with Him, transformed now and filled with good things, not settling for the false and broken hopes of pleasure and experience promised by sin. As we've said this summer, this list of seven deadly sins isn't meant to be definitive. It's not a checklist or an official count. It's an ancient idea that helps us to see the different forms that sin can take in our lives, the different ways that it can creep into our hearts and our minds and our relationships, drawing us away from the design of our Creator 
and into an existence of hopelessness and selfishness, lost and cut off from each other and from the one who made us. We are not made for a life hindered by sin, burdened by sin. We are made in the image of God, His image placed in us. That we would live with Him, share with Him, create with Him. Experience joy with Him. He gave us the world. Each other. And Himself. And it wasn't enough for us. We decided we knew better how to make ourselves happy. Instead of submission and trust, we chose self. And lost not only what we had, but what we were trying to get. We were made for Him. And in our sin, we lost both. And so in our sin, in these different parts of sin that we've been looking at, we see the different ways we've lost ourselves and what God is trying to restore in us. In our greed, we see our fear and our selfishness, our desire to control, to take that control away from God and hold on to it ourselves, to control our world and our lives, the people around us, to try to pretend that He doesn't exist, that we don't need Him. And God's inviting us to open our hands to release our need to control, to pile up more and more stuff to make ourselves okay and just trust Him to be enough. To humble ourselves and submit. To receive His gift of grace and the promise of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. In our gluttony, we see this insatiable hunger for fulfillment to fill our lives with Every possible thing to make us okay, to feel like we have enough, like we are enough. Food, entertainment, relationships, status, work, whatever it is. Anything and everything to hide from what we've lost and fill that space that only God can fill in our hearts. And already, after just two weeks, we begin to see how all of these sins are the same sin. Trying to replace God. To fill the place only He can fill. To find the peace that only He can give. We see the depth of our need for Jesus. Today we come to the next on our list and we see just how far we've fallen. How lost we are. The sin of lust. And the poisoning of the most profound and beautiful of our relationships. Now, this morning we are blessed to have lots of kids in here with us as we have, have had through this whole summer. But this is a delicate one to explore with little ears among us. And we want to speak truth today boldly and clearly, but we also want to protect little hearts and minds that might not understand some of the aspects of this topic this morning. And so we're going to speak clearly, but carefully, 
And I invite you older folks to understand clearly what we're talking about and calling out and what God is speaking here this morning, that you will let His Spirit convict you as He desires to do. That we can all grow in holiness and humility, pursuing righteousness and the purity of relationship that God has created us for. Because this is an enormously important topic, one that cuts deeply to the core of our culture and the world around us and our own experience. Our world is deeply and intensely sexualized. Every screen, every advertisement, every place you go, most of the stories we tell, we are surrounded by explicit images and evocative messages pulling at our minds, at our spirits, drawing our eyes away from the beauty of what God has created to a perverted and poisoned presentation of that beauty. Of all the hungers of our hearts, sex is one of the most powerful and most potent because as we said at the beginning it is one of the deepest ties we have to the depth of relationship that God created us for calls to something profound in us and grabs our attention in ways few other things can we have corrupted this part of creation more fully than almost anything else because it is something so deeply connected to what God has created us to be and what he has given us to know of relationships and unity the most profound truths give way to the boldest and deepest lies and all of this exploitative messaging and provocative media are all the more sad because Sex is good. Intimate human relationships are good, created by God. From the very beginning, this was the intent. The two shall become one flesh. It was a command and a gift, united in life, in body and spirit in Christ. A way to experience connection in a way nothing else can do. And God dedicated a whole book to the beauty and power of love. Song of Songs is a declaration of the beauty and goodness of love and physical relationship, describing and displaying for us that God sees this as good too. And we've made it a shameful thing. Sin has made it a shameful thing. Adam and Eve were naked, and they were not ashamed completely exposed and totally vulnerable before one another. And it was beautiful. And then they sinned. And that vulnerability became a burden. Shameful. Something to hide. And all of our relationships became unclean and broken and selfish and exploitative. Instead of enjoying what God has given together and making one another more, we use each other and take from each other and make each other less to try to fill our empty and broken souls. It's devastating. 
so damaging. We use each other to fulfill ourselves all over the place. We demean and dehumanize others, reducing them to body parts and empty shells. To make ourselves feel a certain way, we make them less. To fill this void in our soul that love was always meant to fill. And even less, sometimes, many times, to just sell products we don't need to fill an even emptier place of brokenness, the idea of fulfillment. And Jesus talked a lot about this, about the depth and damage of this sin, the lust, that lust and sexual immorality can have on our spirit. In Matthew chapter 5, and all through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into, your, go into hell. Be perfect, he says, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not just a physical act, it's the intent, it's the hunger of our heart, of our soul to use another person to fill ourselves, displaying themselves for our amusement and empty selfish hunger. Instead of two souls together to become more than either can be apart, Jesus understood how deep this damage goes, this violation of creation that we use, when we use each other this way, we do so much more than sit in action. We violate our very spirit. The image of God placed within us and within them. He knows our instincts. He knows our temptations. He knows that our hungers, our desires, our understanding of what is good has been tainted. And he asks us, what truly matters to you? Where do we find our identity? Where do we find truth? How do we determine our goal? What is good? Because the world will tell us one thing, that it's about our rights, our good, what I need, what is best for me, what I believe is good, and no one can tell me otherwise. And if God aligns with that, then fine, but if He doesn't, I determine what's best. How's that working out for us? Jesus sees it so differently. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about the world. It's not about what we think or can figure out what's best for us in our eyes. It's Jesus over everything. It's God's will over everything. His righteousness and His holiness over everything. Take everything from me and give me Jesus. My identity, my family, my future, my purpose, my needs and hungers, my so-called rights and what I think I'm entitled to. Take it all. 
and give me Jesus. Let him decide what to put in me, what to make of me, how to use me, what my life is supposed to look like. Our identity and our sexuality as humans gets completely upended and overturned when we put ourselves in the middle and our decision about how best to live, to fulfill ourselves, but it's never been about us. It's always been about Him. His will, His design, His nature expressed in creation in us. That's why Jesus says what He does. That's how good God's will and nature and design for our lives truly is. If anything gets in the way of that, throw it away. Run away. Burn it. If our eyes cause us to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. That sounds insane, and it is. But that's how good God is. That's how much better He is than anything we can have here, than anything we can create for ourselves, than any momentary pleasure we can pursue. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's so crazy. But that's how much better God is. Do we take Him that seriously? Do we believe Him that fully? Do we look at sin like that, not seeing His ways as holding us back from something good, but promising us more. The unimaginable, eternal, all-powerful joy that God desires us to know in Him. Do we believe it? Or do we need porn? Or to set ourselves up as arbiters of right? Paul talks about this a lot too, 1 Corinthians 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised Jesus from the dead and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that He who unites Himself with her is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Flee from sexual immorality, from sin. Run away. Even if we think, well, I'm not actually having an affair. It's no big deal. We play with these things so much. I'm not addicted to pornography. I'm just sex positive. 
And we play with the edges of these things, dancing around the edge of the fire, seeing how close we can get before we get burned. Seeing how much poison we can take before we feel sick. Just a little bit. Just watching suggestive things. Just a little bit of nudity, a little bit of titillation and enticement. But I'm not acting on it. Just listening to suggestive music. It's just good tunes. What are we doing? Flee. Pursue righteousness, holiness, good things. Life in the Spirit. It's what we were made for. It's available to us. But Jesus knows us and He knows our hearts and the choices we make. He knows this isn't easy. And what He's calling us to is hard. Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. The road that Jesus walks is not easy. It's not through the main gate that everyone goes down that makes sense to everyone. It's not a life that looks like everyone else's. It's weird and narrow and difficult. But it leads to life. A life worth living. He's promised us it's worth it. Matthew 7, therefore anyone who hears these words of mine, these things that Jesus himself has been telling us, if anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. He knows how these things end. We know how these things end. Our world and our own lives are overflowing with broken relationships, disease and emptiness and loneliness and pain. We can see the result of following the world's heart for sex and relationship. It does not lead to life. The house has fallen with a great crash. So Jesus calls us to a different way, to see life in a different way, to see sex and relationships and identity and truth in a different way. And in Hebrews, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us on that narrow path. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Throw it all off and run to Him, with Him. He is the source. Take it all and give me Jesus. And if you're feeling lost right now, if you know that you've sinned, this might be a huge struggle in your life. It probably is. 
This is massively ubiquitous throughout our society. You are not alone. But you're not left alone either. First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There is hope. There is forgiveness, new life set free and made new, restored and redeemed. Let him reset your heart, your life. Let him renew your mind. Restore your relationships. Heal your hungers. Trust him to determine truth, to define who you are, to help you hunger for the right things, good things, that in him you can find the abundant life he promised you. The world has a lot to say about sex and relationships and about how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to think. Who are you listening to? Take it all and give me Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. This is a hard topic, a challenging topic. Our world is so steeped in an unhealthy understanding of these things. And we are so easily drawn along as media and messaging and culture and all of these things just surround us infinitely, endlessly. Father, help us to plant our feet firmly on the rock. Help us to find that narrow gate and that path, following closely with Jesus, filled with His Spirit, forgiven, redeemed, and restored by Him, and more and more each day transformed into His likeness. Father God, we ask Your forgiveness where we have failed, and it is much We invite your correction, even if it will hurt. We invite accountability, Father. Surround us with people that love us and care for us and help us walk on that straight and narrow path. Help us to be open and vulnerable, to bring things to light that they can be exposed and seen and forgiven. We desire, God, to live in love as you created it to be. It is good. We want to express these things in the healthy, wonderful, amazing ways you created them. We thank you for this gift. We ask that you would protect it. Help us to enjoy it as you created us to do that we can show the world that the love of God is better than anything we can find here. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.